So we're in the book of Proverbs still, and I'm going to read some, uh, a variety of Proverbs here. So hear the word of the Lord this morning with me. Proverbs two sixteen through 17. So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companions of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. Proverbs eleven twenty two, Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. Proverbs 12, 4 reads, An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. Proverbs twelve fifteen, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Proverbs thirteen twenty two reads, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. Proverbs seventeen one, Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. Proverbs 18.22 He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Proverbs 19.13 A foolish son is ruined to his father, and a wife's quarreling is a continued dripping of rain. House and wealth are inherited from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. Proverbs 21.9 reads, It is better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. And last, Proverbs 21.19, it is better to live in a desert, deserted land, I'm sorry, than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. Good morning. I was watching to see who would slip out of the room after the scripture reading. We had guards at the door making sure no one would leave. Boy, it was quiet. Good to be back in the pulpit. It's been a few weeks off. A lot of pastor elders covered for the few weeks that I was taking some rest. They did a great job and good to work with those men and who love Jesus and want to share his word with you. So um, with that being said, we are in the book of Proverbs. I'm going to dismiss the kids so they can go to their age-appropriate class. And um, we're going to look at an important topic Our title has been God's Wisdom for Gospel Living as we look through the book of Proverbs. We started back in June. We have two more sermons after today, and then we will spend one Sunday talking about uh, community groups, the need and the biblical commands to live in community and life together. And then starting September 20th, Back to Church Sunday, we got some cards made up we're going to give out in the next few weeks to invite friends and family who may have been around for a while. Uh, September 20th, we begin our series in the gospel according to John. We do expository preaching verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We're going to be looking at the gospel according to John for about a year. Uh, we'll take some breaks in between, kind of a long time, but we are going to walk through that book together. But now we're in Proverbs, and we are more of, a, of an expositionally topic kind of book. It's written that way. It's wisdom literature. So rather than going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, we're preaching it through it expositorily, taking the meaning from the text, but looking at it more as a thematic or more as as a topic. We have said so far that all the topics that we have covered, um, that it's been an exhortation, it's been a, a word from God to live in such a way that demonstrates and declares the transforming work of the gospel in our lives. And if there's ever a need of all the topics we covered for the work of the gospel to know God's wisdom, 
is in the area of marriage and family. That will be our subject for the next few weeks. Today, the topic of marriage and the choice of a spouse. Now, please don't go to sleep if you're here this morning and you're single, okay? As members of one family, one body, we can learn something from the topic of marriage and choosing a spouse. Maybe some of you here are single and and looking or inspired to be a husband, a wife someday. But let me say something quickly. I want to say just a word, if I can, about singleness. If you're single and you're here today, we never want here at King's Chapel, we never want to become a church that degrades or somehow devalues or dismisses any way your, your value and worth because you're not married. Some of you have the gift of singleness. Paul talked about it in 1 Corinthians 7. But I think in our culture, particularly in church culture, sometimes we get into this place where marriage is the only way to go. We don't want to be that church. We want you to know that being a single is a gift from God. It is, there, is, there are certain freedoms that Paul talks about to maximize the cause of the gospel here and around the world. Many people are single and have been used greatly. We honor you. If you have that gift, you are precious and valued and loved here, especially in the church culture. I just wanted to say that. I mean, Paul and Jeremiah, and let's not forget Jesus, a single man who was celibate, had a fulfilling life. Amen? Amen. Who is to say he didn't? So with that said, though, we are going to deal with the topic of marriage. And my prayer is that we will learn something and be transformed by the gospel. I want to show you just a quick video. It's about 45 seconds. Just kind of settle in to prepare us for marriage. Man and wife. Say man and wife. Man and wife. Escort the bride to the honeymoon suite. I'll be there shortly. Man and wife. I've been waiting months to show that video, just so you know. We're going to look at our topic today. And again, for everyone in God's family. The covenant of marriage... The choice, we'll deal with choice, who to marry. The character, we'll look at some character traits described in marriage. And then end with the Christ and his bride. So let's look at that. First is the covenant of marriage. Okay? The covenant of marriage. The first thing we need to know and understand, regardless of any Supreme Court decision, uh, 
what culture may dictate. Marriage has been given to us by God, and God alone is the only one who instituted it and defines it and its meaning. Now, I don't want to go off on a bunny trail. I'm not going to do that. The pastor and elders of this church has recently uh, came together, and we have a marriage statement for the covenant family members. We'll get a copy of that uh, statement that has been uh, designed and kind of given to us, or kind of we have adopted to kind of protect us with this, what's going on in our culture today. I'm not going to get into the different nuances. I'm not going to run down that bunny trail. I'm simply going to show from Scripture what God has declared in His Word. We read at the very beginning of Genesis chapter 1, in Genesis, that marriage was God's doing and God's design. It's not man's idea. It's not up to us to question. It's not up to us to change. It's something that God has said in his word. Genesis 1. God creates man in his own image. In the image of God, he recreated them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. We turn the page in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. God himself announces that Adam's perfection, even before the fall, It's not good, he says, for man to be alone. I will. God will. I will make him a helper fit for him. God then brings the animals before Adam. Adam's like, ah, the giraffe, uh, the elephant, the hippo. You know what? Nothing really looks very pleasing to me. I'll name them. But so God says, you know what? I'm going to create out of the rib uh, someone who is created in the Imago Dei, in the image and likeness of God, with dignity, value, and worth for you. A human being created in his image. And Genesis says that the Lord caused a man to sleep. He went to sleep, like the first operation. The rib comes out. The rib he takes, he makes into a woman, and he brings her to the man. That's what Genesis uh, 2, says. And he brings her. And the, Adam then just breaks out into this song. In Hebrew, it's that this is last, the bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she has been taken out of a man. Then Moses writes in Genesis 2.24, A man shall leave his mother and his father and hold fast, cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. They shall become one flesh. God, if you notice, is depicted here in the first marriage ceremony as a father who is escorting his bride, and he presents her as the first dad presenting his daughter to a man, and his name is Adam. And unlike any relationship in the world, God designed and instituted marriage in this ceremony. Now, let me just stop and say, guys, think about that for a moment. If you're married or you have inspirations of being married, It's not just the biological dad walking her down the aisle. If she is a daughter and a child of the king to whom in which he purchased with his blood, God the Father has given you her. That should jar you. It jars me. I, I want you to feel that. Some people say, you know, Jesus had nothing to say about marriage, nothing in the New Testament at all. That's not true. That's not true. Matthew 9, he says to the Pharisees, have you not read from the very beginning how God created them? He's talking about God the Father and, 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 and creation. He made them male and female. He said, Gen- uh, excuse me, Matthew 19, he quotes Genesis, a man shall leave his mother and hold fast to his wife, the two shall become one. 
They are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus goes back to Genesis, goes back to creation, goes back to the design, goes back to the first marriage, to the institution that God has ordained. And he says, have you not heard? And this one flesh idea that Jesus talks about, that Moses talked about, this one flesh idea has to do with one word. And that word is covenant. That word is covenant. Proverbs 2.16. So you will be delivered from this forbidden woman. He said, if you fear the Lord, that's the context. If you fear the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. It's not just the covenant that she has with God, but with his her husband, Malachi 2.14, same thing. The Lord has witnessed between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and what? Your wife by covenant. We have been told that the foundation of marriage and relationship is love. That's not true. The foundation, the glue of our relation with God, the glue to our relation with one another in covenant marriage is that word covenant. Now love flows from it. Love comes out of it. Love is, is uh, uh, seen through it. But it's covenant. A covenant that is made. There's a difference. God, our God, is a covenant-keeping, covenant-making God. And we are called to make covenants as well. And a husband and wife is, is a covenant. It's a solemn it's a binding relationship where two people are joined together and two become one. Think of it this way. Our, our covenant that God makes with us in Jesus combines the church as one with him. Right? And it's the same way in the covenant of marriage. It's not a contract. It's not you do your part, I do mine, and when we're done doing our parts, it's over. Or what's in it for me? That's wicked. That's not a covenant. It's permanent, it's unending, where contracts are contingent. It's not a promise so that it can look toward the future when it's over. It's a promise that we keep that's unending. It's a vow that has continuing force. The Lord didn't establish a contract. He established a covenant with Israel, a covenant with the church. The word join together, let no man put asunder as the King James. The word join together is a picture of, of two oxen joined together as one plowing in the field, working together. In fact, it's in the aorist tense which speaks of a definite completed action in the past but has future, um, uh, a future, it's seen in the future as well. And it's actually, if you look at that passage both in Genesis and in um, Matthew 19, it's God who's doing the joining. So I did a wedding yesterday. My father-in-law got married, 85 years old, met a woman in a nursing home, and they they wanted to get married. They've been been dating for about six months. I thought that was long enough, 85 and 83, and we did the wedding. You can do it at 85 and 83, right? But they joined together as one in a marriage relationship. Now, I presided over it, but it's God who does the joining, right? It's God who does the joining. One, one heart, right? One flesh, hearts knit together. And this unity is emotional, it's spiritual, it's physical. Sexual intimacy, we're going to talk about that next week. Marriage is intended to be permanent. And, and therefore, marriages should be guarded wisely. It's not a contract. It's not 
Oh, I, you know, I give half and I give half. It's 100, 100, right? Now, now do not get married unless you're, you have this in your head, right? And if you are married and, and you're not ready for this, you need to repent, ask God to forgive you, and embrace your marriage as God calls it as a oneness in your marriage. Now, we're going to move on, but let me, let me just say this. I know there's divorce. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it's on a line. You can read it, our position. Let me just tell you, just like singleness will not be disparaged, we're not, we're not going to treat anyone um, it, with, with disrespect or uh, degrade or dismiss in any way. Same thing with divorce. Same thing with divorce. We are gracious here. There are times where the covenant of marriage, unfortunately in a broken world, ends. Death of a spouse. Biblical divorce. Can God forgive? Will he forgive? Absolutely. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. We want to be gracious. We want to uphold marriage. We want to build families. We want to pour into your life. We want to, if you've been divorced, to help you heal, to help you uh, um, work through the issues, to help you to repent if you need to repent. But there's future for you. We here at the church hold marriage seriously, but we also want to love everyone and everyone, point them to Jesus, to love Jesus, to be healed by Jesus, to walk with Jesus, to be forgiven by Jesus. We're gracious here. Again, sermon is um, 1 Corinthians 7. It's online. I have some other material that we preached through years ago about marriage and divorce. If you are divorced or if you're single, we love you. We want to work with you, partner with you to love and serve and live on mission with Jesus, okay? I can't go too much. I I don't have much time. It's online. You can look at it. I I hope I was gracious and yet upholding marriage. So let's look at the choice. If marriage is permanent, marriage is unending, and and it's something God designed, it's something that God instituted, we should take it seriously. Look at Proverbs 19.14. House and wealth are an inherited from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. Matthew 18, 22. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Money, material, things left behind, things in the will, things that, you know, all these things are, are wonderful, they're left behind, but it is God, it is an inheritance, it is a gift from God to find a spouse that we can live together in harmony and that together bring honor and glory to God. So let me just say, needless to say, the scripture's clear. Christ-centered, Christ-exalting marriage can only happen between two people who are Christ-centered and Christ-exalting. You can't get any more clear than that. The Scripture is clear. Marrying outside the faith is sin and it's forbidden in Scripture. It's not because God is a killjoy. It's because God knows better than you. Unless you think you're smarter than him, you can, I don't. That's forbidden in Scripture. But we said earlier that Proverbs had a lot to do with not the clear teaching of Scripture, not the things that are black and white, commanded in Scripture, had to do more with things that aren't very clear. We just need wisdom from God. So let me just give you a few when choosing a spouse. Number one, number one, making a decision like marriage should never be done in a vacuum. Look what it says in Proverbs 15, 22. Without counsel, plans fail. But with many advisors, they succeed. Why, you say? Family, I love you. I'm going to tell you the truth. In love. 
many times, in my experience and experience with others, we've been hurt. We've had rough childhoods. We have rough households that we've been raised up in. And alone, we make bad choices. We make bad choices in relationships. We make bad choices in loyalties. We make bad choices, particularly with the opposite sex. Too often, we are so connected emotionally that when we are dating, or we are seeking someone to be married to, they're putting their, first, their best foot forward. And sometimes that's true, but sometimes it's phony. And everybody around you sees it but you. You need people to speak into your life and not be blinded by your simple rush of emotions. People put their best foot forward in dating. Right? We're looking for the catch. It was a young couple that was doing the same thing. They were putting their best foot forward. And then they decided to get married. And as the day approached, they had this problem because there were some things they wanted that the other spouse didn't know. So the young man went to his father and said, Dad, I, I'm getting married. I have deep concerns about this whole thing. And the father's like, don't you love this girl? Absolutely, he says. But see, I have really, really smelly feet. She doesn't know it. And I'm afraid she's going to find out and not want to stay in the same bed with me. He's like, listen, don't worry. Wash your feet often and wear socks. When you go to bed, wear socks all the time. All right, Dad, cool. And the bride had some things, too, because she put her best foot forward. And she went to mom and said, Mom, I'm getting married. I got a problem. She's like, what's wrong, honey? She's like, um, I have really, really, really bad breath in the morning. I mean, worse than normal. Oh, she said, that's all right. You know what you do? You get out of bed early, and you go and start making breakfast. And as you're going to make breakfast, you swing by the bathroom. You brush your teeth five times. You use the mouthwash. And don't say a word until that's done. She's like, oh, I got it. So they get married. Six months down the road, they're, you know, it's early in the morning, right? Dawn is waking, dawn is coming, the sun is coming up, and the husband wakes up first and sees and feels the sock is gone. So he's like freaking out. He's pulling the sheets up. He's trying to get, where's the sock? She, of course, wakens and not thinking. It's like, what's the problem? It's like, ah, you ate my sock. <laughs> right? It's important to get all the facts before we get married because we want to make the wise choices we got to know everything we need we don't do that in a vacuum because making a decision an unending permanent marriage covenant with someone has long-term consequences look at proverbs 19 a foolish son is ruined to his dad and a wife's quarreling is a continual dripping of rain. It's like no matter where you go, no matter where you run, no matter where you hide, fighting and quarreling and dissension in the home, it brings great stress on a marriage. So does the one you're dating love to fight, love to quarrel, look to disagree? That could be a huge red flag. Proverbs 21.9. It is better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. A continual dripping on the rainy day and the quarrelsome wife are alike. Now, guys, if you know what's good for you, this is not the time to say amen. Just keep it quiet. <laughs> if we're honest, let's be honest. I, I'm an equal opportunity here. It could be true of guys as well. 
Could be true of God as well. But the decision who we should marry must be thoroughly and carefully considered and not done in a vacuum. It should be done within community. One of the most difficult things or steps in choosing a spouse is being ready and willing to wait on God. Right? To be patient. When we become impatient, we take matters into our own hands and not only mess with with the decisions and, and reap the consequences. Proverbs, again, 12.4. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who brings shame is like rottenness to his bones. You see, when you wait on the Lord, when you wait on him, and he, and he, he, he tests our faith, and, and we, are lear- we learn to be dependent upon him. And James tells us that we are growing in maturity. Testing your faith, he says, produces steadfastness. The testing of our faith produces steadfastness. Then he says, let steadfastness have its full effect so that you may be whole and complete and lacking in nothing. Waiting overcomes this, this bad decision to run into something emotionally. And then making a decision that has long-term consequences. Remember, if it's a gift that God wants to give us, that God wants to give us a spouse who is Christ-centered, exalting spouse, we should approach the decision, we should approach the situation with, with, with community, with, with patience, with wisdom, and we should be asking, what will please you, Lord? And lastly, let me say this. We talk about choice. I, and some of you heard this from me. If you are considering and taking in what we're going to say today, and even if you're a spouse, and I'm hoping I'm speaking to you too, there's things we can learn together. You need to be that person first before you start shaking trees and looking under the roots. Sometimes I think that, as I've spoken to other men and other women, Be the woman of God God wants you to be. Seek his face. Work the gospel in your life. Be transformed by grace. Be the spouse that you ought to be, and then God will bring you many times then the spouse that's right for you. That's a wise wise, uh, decision to make, but it is a good decision. Number, Number three. The choice, okay? We looked at the choice. Look at, look at, let's go and spend some time looking at the character for marriage. Let me just say a couple things. We're looking at character today, right? So we're looking at the character. Okay, not only how I should be a husband as I should be as a man, but how I as a woman should look for a man or I as a man should look toward a woman. What are we looking for? And then let me just say a couple of things. Number one, I don't have time to discuss every single important characteristic of someone that you are considering to marriage or even someone you should be as a spouse. It's not exhaustive. I I can't do that. We're going to talk about sex. We're going to talk about children and family at another day. Second, there's a huge difference between the perfect character of Christ and fallen men and women, right? So no wife or husband is perfect and nobody can live up to a perfect standard. But with that said, someone who is seen passionately pursuing Christ, their life, their pattern is important. It's doable. It's indispensable when choosing a spouse. Unfortunately, I think we live in a culture of fantasies, 
um, movies, songs, and books portray this, this fake, idyllic man or woman, and I hate to burst your bubble. If you're here seeking a spouse and you're looking for a perfect spouse, the truth is, if you do find him or her, they'll take one look at you and leave anyway. Okay, so let's just be honest right there, or me. I put myself in that category. So there is none. But I want to give you six characteristics of men. We're going to hit them fast. That should be on the radar. Six characteristics and traits of men and, and women that will be you know, on our radar. Okay, so we're going to hit it quick. The first, of course, you guys could deal with this in community group. Talk about it, you know, talk about it, share about it, pray about it. Okay, so ladies, we're going to go first. Uh, the characteristics of a godly man, okay? Now, guys, just so you know, Proverbs was written to who? The leaders, the men of Israel. So there's a lot there for you to grow in and to learn from. But let me give you a couple, all right? Number one, what makes a man uh, ready for marriage, a man who is prepared for marriage, number one, he counsels, listen, with many. Proverbs twelve fifteen. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Lots of passages in Proverbs about the counsel of many. And here's the things, ladies. Listen, if the dude that you're dating is the smartest guy in the world, just ask him and he will tell you. And he has no need for close friends and godly mentors. That should be a red flag. Jesus lived with others. Jesus leaned on others. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and... and, and, and about to approach the cross, he took Peter, James, and John with him. Yes, they fell asleep, weren't a whole lot of help, but still, he took them with him to pray with him. Dudes show their ignorance. Guys shows their ignorance and pride when they think they can handle life and make all the right decisions. I know what's going on in every area of my life all by myself. So then they become fathers and, and husbands, and life gets a lot more difficult than just going, you know... Which I play the Wii, the Xbox, this game, that, you know, things get a little bit more complicated, right, with a wife and some kids, and, and, and they, they, they won't grow. They need to be around the counsels of those who love Jesus. Number two, the company he keeps, which is kind of like number one. Proverbs thirteen twenty. look, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companions of fools will suffer harm. Ladies, you'll know a lot about a guy from the company he keeps, okay? I'm not talking about men who are living on mission, who are living and, and, and having relationships outside the faith. We talked about that already in the friendship series. But there's this deep abiding friendships that only brothers can have. Those who are seeking the face of Christ, working toward building the kingdom, being used of God, there, there's, there's, you know, this God-loving, God-exalting relationships and friendships that we should recognize and should be around. The scripture says bad company corrupts good morals. It's not just simply you're a sinner, I'm not hanging out with you. That's not what I'm saying, because that was the case. No one would hang out with you or me. You'll get that later. But the principle here is influence. Men who are easily influenced down the path of stupidity and ignorance and harm can't lead a wife in love and lead a family in this anti-God culture. Number two, he needs to keep good company. Number three, his composure in life. Look at Proverbs 4.29. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalt folly. 
Angry men are dangerous. Angry men are dangerous. Now, to be clear, not all anger is sinful, right? Not all responses to anger is sinful. Good and right and controlled anger and, 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 and injustice when people are, are exploited can be used to propel towards righteousness, toward justice. It's part of the Imago Dei. We talked about that. But unjust and bib- unjust. Biblical and sinful anger, we said, is tied to disordered love. Ladies, here's the issue. When his man is angry and he's uncontrolled by it, or he's controlled by it, he lashes out sinfully. It's because there are idols and strongholds in his life. Unrighteous, selfish anger always does harm. Before he can become a husband, before he become a dad, he needs to confess his anger. He needs to uh, uh, consider his heart knock down the idols, repent of them, and then he needs to be secure in the gospel. Right? Secure in the gospel. Jesus takes our punishment, takes the wrath we deserve. All our sin and stupidity have been taken upon him and, and God pours out his wrath and anger on Jesus. And a man understands that. And that Jesus took our anger, the twisted idols of our hearts, at the infinite cost of his own life. And when a man truly comes to know that and begins to press that into his life, he will respond to his anger differently. He will say, I've been wrong, but I wrong God. And at the infinite cost, he gave his life for me. And now I have grace and love and forgiveness. And he will treat others that way. Number four, he contributes to others. Okay? His work ethic, look at chapter 15, verse 27. Whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household, but he who hates bribes will live. We covered this topic on work and sloth, but let me just say this. Work ethic is very important. Scott talked about it. There can be work idolatry where you're, you're putting aside your personal, you know, your responsibilities at home and, you, and you're, you're, you're working and everything else is being put aside. But then there's a work ethic that men have that teach them responsibility, teach them diligence, teach them loyalty, teach them trust, right? It's not all about just his toys. Look at Proverbs 21.13. Whoever closes his eyes, ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. So he's not only loyal and reliable on his work, but look, he cares about others. He's a generous man. It's not just about what's in his wallet, what's in his pocket, what's in his driver, what's in his garage, what's in his shed. He's a generous man. He sees others and God's love in him is seen when he cares and loves other people. Proverbs 14, 21. Whoever despises neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. Again, a man's character and his love for God is seen. Does he care for other people? Does he care for other people's? Proverbs 14, 31. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. Number four, he contributes to others. Number five, he is consecrated to her alone. Chapter five of Proverbs speaks a lot about his son going into sin or, or, or at least staying away from sin and folly and the wickedness of adultery. And one of the ways men, for men not to fall into that wicked trap is to be consecrated, devoted wholly to his wife. Proverbs 5.15, drink water from your cisterns, from your own. It's in, it's in, this has to do with relationship with his wife. Drink from your own cisterns, flowing from your own well your home, your wife. Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers. Let 
your fountain be blessed and rejoice in, his, in the wife of your youth. Be intoxicated always in her love. Now, I realize that this is written for men who are already married. But if there's one thing about dating that you could tell ladies about men is, is he consecrated to you? Is he single-eyed for you? If he's not, and he's even in a dating situation, ladies, I hate to tell you, but it says a lot about his heart and the fleeting of his eyes in the future. It's not about looking up under every hood. It's about being consecrated, dedicated. Guys, you hear that? You want to date God's child? Be consecrated to her. And lastly, number six, he celebrates her. Proverbs 31, 28. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also... And he praises her. Does the man in your life encourage you, praise you? Not in an idolatry, bow down and worship you, but words of acclamation, words of praise, words of encouragement. In times of of success, in times of struggles. Do you know the, the only way a man can do that is when he is concerned about you. He has eyes for you. He's consecrated to you. Guys your, guys, your praise and encouragement give her hope. It helps to get through times of testing and trials. We get overwhelmed so quickly with life. Words of acclamation, words of praise, words of encouragement are like water to a soul. It reminds her of how treasured she is by God. Okay? So those are the four things. Counsels with many. He's not know-it-all. He keeps good company. He's around and being mentored by men. He keeps his composure. He understands the gospel. He contributes to others, not about what's in his garage. He is consecrated to her alone, and he celebrates her. Okay? Good? Everybody good? All right, let's hit the next six, and we'll look at them in the next few minutes. Number one. Okay, let, let me, we're going to be in Proverbs 31. You can go there if you want. And uh, remember, Proverbs 31 was written to ancient Israel in agricultural time. Um, it's the idyllic woman. Ladies, uh, uh, just so you know, there are a lot of things in that passage I don't think really apply to you today. You're off the hook somewhat, a little bit. We'll talk about principles from that. But, um, I mean, that, the verse talks about her being uh, 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 a... a, a, a you know, selling property and things of that nature. But by her example, we could pull some principles here. So you have to be careful. And remember, guys, chapter 31 in your Bible, uh, let, me, let me just say this. Listen to me. A lot of times women's ministry, I'm talking to the guys, a lot of times women's ministry is Proverbs 31, and they glean principle and all that. That's, that's wonderful, and, and I think you should. Proverbs 31 wasn't written for a woman to be a better wife. Proverbs 31 in its original content was written for you to treasure your wife. You could draw principles, ladies, don't get me wrong. But the, the message was written to a man to treasure his wife, to be a better husband, to be a better man. That's what the original content or context of chapter 31 is, is to exhort men to, to appreciate the worth of their wife. That's what, that's what the original context is. So, Yes, we'll draw some principles, but I just, I I wanted you to know that, okay? So here we go. Number one, looking for a wife. Number one, look what it says, Proverbs 31, 12. She does him good. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. 
The Hebrew word does is not irregular or temporary. It is consistent in her life, just like it says all the days of her life. Walkie, he's a commentator. He says, her commitment to her husband's well-being is true, not false, constant, not temperamental, reliable, not fickle, and discerning. This is a lot, guys, right? She's a helper. You see, an ungodly wife humiliates her husband, disparages her husband, wants to bring harm to her husband. She's not a helper. She's a hindrance. Proverbs 12, we read, is rottenness to the bones. And guys, if you're thinking you're going to overlook that, you know, she's, she's you know, her outward beauty, and, or, or I'm going to change her once she gets married, you're going to spend a lot of time in your brand new treehouse. Proverbs 25, it is better to live in a corner of the housetop than a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. <laughs> but when a woman is devoted to her man's good, the woman is devoted to his encouragement. The woman is devoted to his encouragement. She will seek to see him grow in his faith. She will help him to be the man God has called him to be. The helpmate. Genesis 2. Number 2. And I want you to hear me here. She's diligent at home. Now, there are many verses that speak about women being diligent and caring for the home. But before I go any further, let me just say two things, okay? The idea that a woman should not, and I'm speaking, if you're new here or you are new to Christianity, this has not concerned you. But if you've been around a while, this, this silly notion that women cannot work outside of the home is just not biblical. This idyllic woman in Proverbs 31 that we will glean principles from, verse 16, verse 18, verse 24, is an entrepreneur and a realtor. She works. On the other side of that, we should never degrade women, no matter how highly educated they are, who chose to stay home. And, 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 and I saw this on Facebook the other day. It's like, well, what do you do all day? Are you kidding me? Really? So we have to be careful. Let, let's, let's encourage one another. Let's strengthen one another and not tear each other down. The world does that. Number two, I'm not saying that because they need to be diligent at home. Guys, get the clicker. The soft chair, get your TV, your slippers, because she's got to do everything. That's not what I'm saying. Okay? I just want to make that really clear uh, because you never know. Hey, no, Pastor said I ain't got to do nothing. That's not what I said. <laughs> but I am saying there is sufficient amount of Scripture, and I believe of biblical principles, that teaches us that women are to take responsibility to make a house a home. You could shoot me later. And you know what? Every home is different. Every home will look differently. Look at verse 15. My wife is not here. I could say this. It says, she's going to get the CD out here later. But anyway, this is true. She should provide food for the house. Now, I love to cook. I want to cook. I want to cook for her. I love to cook. I'll provide that. I'm good. I I can do that. But I got to be honest. My wife has turned my house into a home. The atmosphere in my home would be very different if I was single and I don't mean that for the better. I mean that for the worse. I love to kid my wife. I walk around the house and say, you know, that was your idea. That was your idea. That was your idea. This is your color. She has turned our house 
into her home. And I'm very, very, very thankful for her. Verse 31, chapter 31, verse 21. She's not afraid of snow for her household. Well, for her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. She looks well. Look at verse 27, chapter 31. To the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. It doesn't mean every woman needs to sew, right? But it does bring glory to God when they care and serve their home and their family. Repeatedly, she's talked about in terms of diligence and strength. And she works with her hands. She rises early. She retires late. Unlike the slugger last week. He didn't concern himself about the future. He didn't care. Not this woman. She's diligent. She's a worker. She's night and day caring and, 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 and seeing the beauty and the glory of God and serving her family. Number three. She displays care for others as well. She opens her hands to the poor, reaches out her hands to the needies. Guys, are the ladies you're looking to be your wife, do they have a generous spirit? Does she, like the man described earlier, care about others? Red flags should go up, guys, if she's so self-absorbed trying to seek the beauty and the glory outside of Christ. And that this, this self-focus turns into an opportunity to care about no one but herself. She unfortunately, and I, and I say this with, with tears, has come to terms, not come to terms, that her beauty is in Christ, that God delights in her, that she's accepted and loved by God. It's an epidemic of women, and guys do this too. I'm not picking on one without the other, you know, or one and not the other, or one or the other, however you want to put it. Um, this epidemic of people leaving their homes, leaving their children, seeking something, trying to seek what God alone can give them, right? That God and their value and worth is in the gospel, that Jesus is the greatest lover of their soul. The woman who is secure in the gospel is generous. She ministers to her family. She sees, she has eyes open to the needs of others. She does what she can do to help. Number four, She's devoted to his honor. Now look at verse 22 of chapter 31. I don't want you to miss this. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. The man is sitting at the gate. And now in ancient Israel, that's the center of political and judicial life, okay? So these elders gather together and the city gates the policy for the community, they, they settle grievances, they decide legal claims, very important in the life of Israel. This woman, this wife's accomplishments not only increases her husband's stature, the word known can mean renowned or respected, not only increases her husband's stature, but gives him the freedom and the ability and, and, and to participate in this life. In fact, verses 11 and 12 of chapter 31, her husband trusts her, relies upon her. In fact, Her praise, look at verse 31 at the end of chapter 31. Her character and genius is praised at the gate. She is known. And this man's honor and respect is known in the community. She is truly his helper. It doesn't mean she forfeits her own sense of purpose and identity. But as she serves the Lord, cares for family, has her eyes open to what's going on, it frees him to be the man God has called him to be. That's the idea behind this passage. You know, on a personal note, so much what I do, so much 
that I'm able to do, whether it's meet with you, whether it's meet with groups, whether it's teach, whether it's preach, whether it's pray, all that really, bottom line, is because of my wife. My wife serves, loves, honors, respects me and gives me the opportunity to serve you. And she won't be up here saying that. She's not even in the room right now. She can get mad at me later, but I'd be admitted not to tell you that truth. It's because of her faithfulness and love and honor of me. Okay? So she's diligent at home. Number five, her dialogue. Look at verse 26, chapter 31. She opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. Guys, what comes out of her mouth is important. Is it wise? Is it kind? She speaks with wisdom. She already has it. She's possessing it. She's speaking as she speaks. She speaks of the wisdom of God, the will, and the ways of God. Proverbs 14.1, the wisest of women builds her house, but folly with her own hands tear it down. Wisdom, we said, is the skill. It's to know the will and the ways of God. Wisdom, we said, is living humbly, declaring and demonstrating the gospel, the treasuring of Christ. Here the teacher's saying, listen, she's a woman of wisdom, but she also is a woman of kindness. She instructs gently. She teaches encouraging. She edifies her family. How do you speak to your boyfriend? Guys, how is she, she speaks to you? Ladies who are already married, words to your husband. Are they building him up in such a way that blesses him, encourages him? What's interesting here, if you, if you have a Bible, you like to circle words, circle that word kindness. It means it's the word has said. It talks about God's covenantal love and loyalty and grace to his people. Her words, her instruction to her children, to her, to her family, to her husband, they're motivated, it says, by covenantal love that treats Others with that loyal love and grace that God dealt with his people. So guys, how does she speak to you? Ladies, are you kind? Are are, are you kind only to his face? What do you say to others? This woman here speaks with wisdom and in kindness. Number six, she's dedicated to God. Look at that verse. Chapter 30, verse 30. Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. First, let me tell you what this doesn't say. It's not saying that charm and beauty are bad all the time. Or that a man should ignore her beauty, right? Oh, yeah, how do I look? I don't really care. Uh, That won't go well, just so you know, right? What it's simply saying is that's not the adequate only reason or the adequate reason to marry a woman. The outward adorning of a girl could be, like with the guys, not true, not, not really honest evaluation because beauty can be faked, whether it's jewelry and clothing. And, they, and, and you don't really see from the outwardness, the inward faith and obedience that mark true human beauty. It's not the looks. Yes, we'll talk about that. We're going to talk about that next week about sexuality and sexual intimacy. And we could talk about that as well. God even says in, remember David? It's not what I, it's not, everybody looks at the outward appearance, but I look at the heart, 1 Samuel, right? The vain woman does not know God, does not fear God. She's concerned about herself and only herself. Now, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Here it says, a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. What that means is that her true beauty 
is inward, and it begins and ends with her heart treasuring and loving and worshiping Christ. Christ-centered, Christ-treasuring, loving him first, holding to his word, resting in his eternal love, and it's all-sufficient grace for her. That controls and dominates her life. So she does not do harm, but good to him. She's diligent and cares about her family. She displays care and love for others. She's devoted to his honor, not disrespecting him. Her dialogue is wise and it's kindness. And she is first and foremost a lover of Jesus. Number four and final. Now, I would almost be cruel Some of you are feeling the weight of the sermon. I could tell just by the quietness in this room. To say, here's the instruction, here's the exhortation, and I would be a fool to think you're rushing out of here and going to find somehow the power, the ability, and desire to put this into practice. Whether you're married and you need to change some things or you're considering marriage in the future, let me give you, and I want you to follow me. I've got two or three more minutes. I want to show you and give you the power, the ability, and the desire to be that guy. The power and the ability and desire to be that girl and watch your life transform in the image of Christ. Now watch. In Genesis chapter 2, Moses says, in the first marriage, husband and wife will leave and cleave, and together they will be one flesh. Genesis 2. Jesus picks up Genesis 2 and says the same thing. Later on, Paul, the apostle, will say the same thing in Ephesians chapter 5, but he adds to it. He says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, Genesis 2, Matthew 19, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he goes on to say in Ephesians 5, This mystery is profound. Mystery means it was hidden, now it's not. I'm saying this refers to Christ and the church. Do you understand what he's saying? The entire context of Ephesians 5 and the purpose of marriage is not man-centered, it is God-centered. Paul talks about marriage and says the pattern and the purpose of your marriage, of being married, husband and wife, is to look like Christ and his bride, the church. He says, men, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Ladies, honor and respect and yield to your man as the church does to Christ. Marriage, marriage, is to show the world this, this reality, this, this mystical union between Christ and his bride, the church. So the husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church who gave himself up for her. So when the husband acts disrespectfully or disregards his wife and yells at her and angry with her, only seeking his own welfare, what he's saying is this is how Jesus treats the church. He doesn't care. He doesn't care about her struggles. He doesn't care about her encouragement. He doesn't care about his weaknesses. He doesn't care about her needs. But when a husband seeks the spiritual welfare of his wife, loves only her, praises her, leads her in love into a life of holiness. He sacrifices. He loves her. He, he, he loves her sacrificially and purposefully. There he proclaims to the world the gospel. 
That Christ is not this petty lover, but gave himself up for his bride. Guys are like, I am not going to be treating her this way. Jesus died for her. When I was angry, when I was bitter, when I was doing my thing, Jesus has been consecrated and gave his life for me. When wives submit and honor and do good and speak kindly only when it's convenient... They're self-seeking. They're they're preaching to the church, to the world, that this is how the church should follow Christ when it's convenient. I'll speak nice. I'll speak kindness when I'm in church and when I'm here, when I'm there. But when she joyfully submits and genuinely respects, honors her husband, speaks wisdom, speaks life, speaks good, she proclaims to the world, she proclaims to the world the gospel. So it's not a matter, if you're a Christian here today, it's not a matter or you, or you want to get married. It's not a matter of whether or not your marriage will reflect the gospel. It's a matter of whether it be a good reflection or bad reflection. In marriage, God has called you to each other. In marriage, God has called you more so to himself. God has using you in your marriage to preach the gospel to this lost and dying world. The centrality of Christ, the good news of the, Christ, of the cross. Every husband and every wife must have this growing sense of their brokenness, God's holiness, God's mercy, God's grace, God's kindness toward us. And then we should show that same grace, that same mercy, that same kindness, that same patience, all that things that we talk about that are part of the gospel, we should show to one another. How can you be that guy? Know the gospel. Take the gospel in. Look at Christ. Look what he has done for you. Ladies, how can you be that woman? Look at the gospel. Look at all that Christ has done. Look what he has called you to. Look at all he has done to forgive you. Show mercy and grace to you. When we understand that, we'll be ready for marriage. We'll be wise in our decisions. We'll understand marriage is a covenant. We'll choose our spouse rightly, biblically, wisely. We will then grow in the character and likeness of Christ. Why? Because of the gospel. Not simply by trying harder, but understanding how much the gospel means and transforms you because all the work that Jesus has done for you. Father, so much of this in my own life has been a, a, a... a a work that you're doing. Never, ever, ever will I want to declare in any way or make it seem that all this is easily had or even being done continually and persistently by me. Lord, we pray as your family. We, We pray and we thank you for the grace and the mercy of the gospel. We thank you for the life that Jesus gave. We thank you for the the work of the Spirit in binding us together as your people. We thank you that the church, that this mystery has been revealed through Christ and the church that our marriage should reflect that gospel truth. And Lord, we pray that the gospel will transform our hearts, that we will see Christ and treat our spouses in a way in which you have already treated us in the gospel. The Father, as we respond, we respond repentively, we respond joyfully, knowing that you are a good and gracious and kind and forgiving God who empowers us by your Spirit through the work of Jesus on the cross. 
Let us continue in responding as we continue to worship.